Before we pray, I just want to say this, because this morning, just to get us on the right foot. Today, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, this sermon's for you. If you are a Christian, this sermon's for you. And if you're running from God, this sermon's for you. So let's all go before the Lord in a spirit of humility and dependence and ask him to speak to us. Father, Lord, my heart beams with joy in Christ and what's revealed about him in this text. He is very glorious. This is a supernatural thing that we're about when we preach. But I pray that Jesus would stand forth from these pages in such a compelling way that verse 5 happens. That would be supernatural. I cannot do that. So come, mighty breath of God, and blow. Come and do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In, uh, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared a day of fasting and prayer in the United States. And here's what he wrote. Lincoln says, and whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. That's quite an amazing statement by one of our presidents. And the interesting thing about it is that it was employed by President Eisenhower in 1953. And um, ever since 1953, that statement has been dropped out of all successive calls to prayer by presidents of the United States. That's because it contains language of sin and repentance, and that is not tolerated. And it has progressively and, in fact, quite deliberately been forced out of our culture. You know, actually, a really good illustration of this is William Chapman, who chronicles of a well-known evangelist who preached consistently on sin. One day, a leader of his church approached him and said to him, he said, uh, Pastor We don't want you to talk so plainly about sin. If our boys and girls keep hearing you talk about sin all the time, they'll start sinning themselves. And then he goes on to say, so call it whatever you will, but listen, don't speak so plainly about sin. To which the evangelist stood up and he went over to his closet and he pulled out a bottle of strychnine that was labeled rat poison. And he looks at the man and he says, I see what you want me to do. You want me to change the name of this label to something more mild like the essence of peppermint. But, sir, the milder you make this label, the more dangerous you make the poison. That's right, because the more sin is redefined, the more dangerous it becomes. 
And I think the basic lesson there is that, is that sin is too expensive for us to indulge in. It doesn't come free of cost. Can a man scoop live coals into his lap and not be burned? Just ask King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. And he was burned. Just ask him. He will tell you. He should have known better. He never should have been at home alone while his army was fighting. He never should have loitered late into the evening on his rooftop. He never should have set his eyes on that beautiful woman, or if he did, he should have turned away. He never should have inquired about who she was or sent for her. He never should have slept with her. He should have known better. But David sinned, and now Bathsheba is pregnant. He should have known better. He never should have stooped so low as to get Uriah drunk, hoping that somehow he would sleep with his wife and conclude that the child within her was his. He never should have arranged for Uriah's death. He, he should have known better. But King David sinned, and now not only is Bathsheba pregnant, but Uriah is dead. He should have known better. Having committed adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrated the murder of Uriah, he should have confessed his sin and transgression, but he did not. He kept quiet about his sin. He suppressed it. He shoved it deep down inside, thinking that maybe it would be gone forever. He ignored the tug of his heart. He denied the pain in his conscience. He numbed his soul to the persistent pangs of conviction. He should have known better. What a tragedy. I mean, look at the destructive power of sin in David's life. All the good things that God had given him brought to nothing, all in shambles. I mean, he must have looked back, David, on the patterns of sin in his life that had taken root, and he must have wondered, what can wash away my sin? And and maybe you're wondering this morning, how can I be made right with the Holy God? Psalm 32 gives us the answer. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're starting or we're in the middle of a psalm series called Summer Psalms, and we've entitled it, When God is Enough. And today we're dealing with the emotion of guilt uh, from Psalm 32, and David is our instructor this morning. He's, He's the one who can stand with us here in Psalm 32 and look backward at all the sins that we have committed in our life and teach us how to find grace through confession and repentance. And he's also the one that can stand here in Psalm 32 and help us look forward and warn us by saying, don't do what I did. Sin is deadly. You know, you watch TV and movies, and what you see is that adultery and murder and things like this are constantly elevated. I mean, they're, they're almost glorified. But Hollywood never portrays the anguish and the torment and the turmoil that sin causes. Never. But Psalm 32 does. And you know what? This is a song that was written for sinners. It is. Listen to what David says as we, as we engage this psalm about sin as it festered, unconfessed, and unforgiven in his heart. But more importantly, this morning, as you listen to Psalm 32, as David teaches us from this psalm, listen to the song of God as God sings this morning about his forgiving love. Listen to God sing. It's all here in Psalm 32. Now, some of you might be asking, 
What's the relationship between Psalm 32 and Psalm 51? You've been talking about David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. I thought that was David's confession in Psalm 51. So what's Psalm 32? What's the relationship? Well, here's the deal. Both of them deal with the same sin, the same historical background. The difference is Psalm 51 is breathing the emotion. It is fresh. Psalm 51 is David's freshest thoughts after his sin. David writes, he pens, and, and you can almost, it breathes the, the, the emotion of the moment. Whereas Psalm 32 is a, is a delayed reflection on his sin and God's restoration of him. So really, Psalm 51 was written first. Psalm 32 was probably written second and maybe as late as a year to a year and a half later when David uh, reflects on what God had done. One of the reasons why we think that's the case is because Psalm 51 verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors their ways. And that teaching centers their ways. You look at the top of Psalm 32, it says a masculine. That's what a masculine is. It's a teaching. So this is the fulfillment of, of Psalm 51.13. Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of 51.13. It's David's resolve and commitment to actually teach sinners how to repent. So it's great. It's a, and that's what Paul does. Paul uses it as a teaching point in Romans chapter 4. So this is the teaching that David had. And, and it's a favorite passage for many. In fact, Augustine actually had it inscribed on his wall next to his deathbed because he wanted to meditate on this psalm. Now, what I want to do is follow the flow of the text and show you from David's story what this psalm teaches about how a person moves from sin to salvation or from disobedience to deliverance. Uh, it's a beautiful psalm. The Hebrew poetry is amazing. It's breathtaking, really. This week as I sat and I was studying the text, what I noticed was sets of three, is that David was speaking in sets of three. He's grouping all of his content in sets of three. Look at the text. This is, this, is, this is the outline where we're going. Look at the text. What we have is, verses 1 and 2, man sins in three ways. Verses 1 and 2. Then in verse 5, what we see is man repents in three ways. And then again in verses 1 and 2, God responds to man's repentance in three ways. And then in 7 and 8, what happens then? God now relates to us in three ways. On the basis of our repentance. And then after all that is said and done, verses 9 through 11, we should respond to God in three ways. It's amazing. And it's, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. So that's the flow of David's thought. Now let's see what we can learn. First, David starts by describing three ways we've sinned against God, verses 1 and 2. Three ways. Look at the words of David. Look, look what he uses in the first two verses to describe our wrongdoing. Three different Hebrew words, and one of them isn't oops, and one of them isn't whoops. No, we're talking bad, tragic, heavy words to describe sin from God's perspective. And yet it's something that you and I actually do. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. The first word is transgression. Now, what's a transgression? A transgression is a departure. It's moving off of the path that we're supposed to be on, and it's getting on a different path. Um, if the picture of a transgressor is a person who, when told to, say, to go one way, says, no thanks, I'm actually going to go the opposite direction. That's what a transgressor does. It's rebellion against God, plain and simple. It's a refusal to go the way God has required. 
Alexander McLaren says this. He says, you do not understand the gravity of this word transgression if you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or against a crime that is against your fellow man. You have not seen the bottom or blackness of this word until you see that it is nothing short of a flat rebellion against God himself. That's well said. So that's the first word, transgression. Okay? The second word is sin. These are three different Hebrew words. This word sin, Paul uses in Romans 3.23. You know that. You've probably memorized it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a word that simply means to miss the mark or to fall short. Um, it's a disqualifying error. It's something that disqualifies you. Um, it's a disqualifying offense against God. The picture here is of an archer who's got a bow and an arrow. And he's pointing his, his bow and his arrow at a target. And when he shoots the arrow, not only does his arrow miss the bullseye, it misses the target altogether. It falls on the ground. It completely misses the target. It's an air ball. In basketball, only it's not funny. It's tragic. It's an air ball of cosmic proportion. That's what the word sin means. The third word is iniquity. Now, this word is the most holistic term. Um, It means corrupt. It means twisted. It means crooked. Um, It's describing sin in relation to ourselves. So it includes not only our failures, but the guilt. You know, the, the, the inward guilt that's associated with our failures. So the image is of something straight that's been twisted. It's been contorted. It's been ruined. The inside of it is ruined. So here we have three terms to describe our sin against God. The first describes sin as God sees it. The second describes sin as the law of God sees it. And the third one describes sin as it pertains to ourselves. This is very encompassing, all-encompassing language of Paul. Now, I wanted to give you that because I want you to understand what David is saying here. We've sinned against God in three ways. That's what we've done. We are guilty of transgression. We are guilty of sin. We are guilty of iniquity. And this is where our story begins. Um, This is who we are. And here's the problem with modern society is most people don't realize that. They don't realize who they are. They don't see themselves the way God sees them. And the reason why people don't see themselves the way God sees them is because they don't understand God rightly. I mean, sometimes you hear people say things like, or at least you you can infer, I don't go to church to hear about sin. I go to church to hear about God. I don't want to hear about sin. I want to hear about God. (laughs) But listen, the fact is, if you want to hear about God, then one of the first things you'll discover about God is how unclean you are in his presence. You will fill yourself to be unclean. You will understand for the first time that no matter how highly you or others have thought about your qualities or your good gifts, In the presence of God, all of this seems to disintegrate, and you actually begin to feel insecure for the first time. In a way, I mean, it's almost amusing how worldly, church-going, nominal Christians will go to church in order to, quote, feel secure. I mean, when that happens, you have to actually wonder if the casual, cultural, church-going person feels secure at church. Maybe it's because God isn't at that church. You see, when God makes himself known to an individual, when you meet God for the first time, 
and you really understand him, it's insecurity that grips you, first of all. That's the first emotion, is insecurity. The classic example of this is Isaiah, Isaiah 6. What does he do? He meets the Lord, and Isaiah sees God. I mean, occasion after occasion in the Bible, you see this. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is a godly guy. This is a prophet. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, I can imagine Isaiah showing up in somebody's house, quaking and shaking and trembling, and a man saying to him, what's wrong? You know, you look upset. And he says, yes, I've met God. I've met God. And he says, yeah, but why are you quaking and shaking so much? And Isaiah says, because I've seen that I'm a man of unclean lips. And the man looks at him, and maybe a Jewish rabbi or something looks at him and says, Isaiah, of all people, you're a prophet in Isaiah. You're not a man of unclean lips. And Isaiah picks him up by the lapel of his shirt, and he says, listen, if you can say such a thing like that, you've never met the God that I've met. So we feel our insecurity before God. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are about. David says, look at 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night. Now notice this language, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now this, this is intimate language. This is, this is God's intimate uh, display Listen to what – look at just – look at what's happening here. David is hiding his sin. David is in the middle of concealing his sin and his wickedness. David is trying to cover up his guilt. Why is he covering up? Why do you think David is covering up his sin? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose of a covering is to pre- prevent shame. You don't want to be shamed. So you try to hide it and cover it up. Isn't this what Adam and Eve did in the garden? This is what our first parents did. When they sinned in Genesis 3, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together, and they tried to cover their nakedness in order to not be exposed before God. They felt their sin. It wasn't just about nakedness. It's about the metaphor of nakedness. It's about your absolute undoneness before God. And Adam and Eve are sewing. They're literally sewing fig leaves to cover up their sin before God, as if a fig leaf is going to cover up your sin. Now listen, here's what happens. They needed a better covering. Adam and Eve needed a God covering. And to symbolize this, what does God do in Genesis 3.21? He kills an animal and he takes the skins from an animal and he gives them skins from an animal and he clothes them. And what God is showing them is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So as early as Genesis 3, we have echoes of Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So back to David. What's he doing in verse 3? He's keeping silent about his sin. He's hiding it. He's trying to cover it up. He's acting just like Adam. But listen, while David is busy hiding, notice what God is doing. While David is working to conceal his sin, God is working to reveal it. While David is running from God, God is running to David. God is coming after him. God is preparing David for repentance. David may be silent, but God is speaking. Look what David says in in verse 4. For day and night your hand 
was heavy upon me. This is God's hand. God is using David's sin of hiding to reveal his need for God. So God uses our very sin to reveal our need for him. I mean, how kind is God? How kind in the, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our turning away from God, that God actually uses our rebellion to reveal our need for him. How kind is God? And notice this, it's God who starts the process here. He's the one who's taking the initiative. And I just want to say that this morning because to some of you parents who have been praying for your kids for so many years, you've been, you've been pleading with God, God, rescue my kids, save them. You've just been imploring God. And I want to give you hope because, listen, your hope is not in your parenting. It's not. Your, your little boy is sitting in your lap, your little girl sitting there. Your hope is not in your parenting. Parents, please hear me say this. Your hope is not in how good you do as a parent. Your hope is not even in your kid's desire. They, they, they will not desire God. What does the Bible say? No man seeks after God, including your kids. They will not seek after God on their own. What's the hope? The hope is this. Your hope's in God. It's God seeking of your kids. It's God running after your kids. Your hope is in God. So let's pray. God, run after our kids. God, get them for your glory. And maybe you're here as a non-Christian this morning. I just want to say a word to you. If you're here as a non-Christian and today is the day of salvation, um, maybe you've been silent. Maybe you've been hiding from God. Maybe you've been running. And if you have ears to hear what I'm saying, then God may be coming after you this morning. I just want to ask you to pray and ask the Lord to open your ear. Would you pray in your pew right now, God, I'm not a Christian. I'm pretty sure I'm lost. But will you open my ears? May God open your ears to hear what I'm saying and hear God's voice saying, seek the Lord while he may be found. Come to him, Isaiah 55, while he is near. How do you do that? How do you come to God? What does he require of you? You're, you're sitting there. You're saying, okay, I'm a, I'm a dirty person. I've, I've got all kinds of sin. Do I need to clean up my life first? What do I need to do? What does God require? Joseph Hart was right. The only thing God requires is that you feel your need of him. That's it. Listen to the words of his song. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground your maker lies. On the bloody tree behold him. Sinner, will this not suffice? Behold, the incarnate God ascended pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. And here's what you need to say with the song. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000. Praise God. Well, that's what happened to David. Um, David got there. He got into the arms of God. God came after him. So whether David's backsliding in sin or whether you're just lost, you've got to get to the arms of God and his mercy. And bless God for his rescuing initiative. Whether backslidden or lost, it's God who initiates the process. 
And this is the testimony of every Christian, is it not? If you're here as a Christian, is not this your testimony this morning? God laid you low. God laid you low. There was a time when God made you miserable in your sin, and he prepared you for repentance. And that's what happens to David in verse 5. And notice what David does. He repents in three ways. Verse 5, he acknowledges his sin, he does not cover his iniquity, and he confesses his transgression before the Lord. And these are the same words for sin that he used in verses 1 and 2. First, he acknowledges his sin. This is a theology of repentance this morning. Listen to what David does. You want to repent, you need to repent, here's how to do it. First, acknowledge your sin. David acknowledged that the arrow that he shot fell way short of God's target. The first thing he did. My arrow, my arrow of moralism and righteousness, my good guy arrow, flopped. That's the first thing he says. Second thing, he stops hiding his crookedness and guilt, but instead, what does he do? He brings it out into the open in front of God and man. David exposes his sin. And the third thing he does is he lowers his raised fist from God, his fighting fist, his stiff fist of rebellion. He lowers it by confessing his transgression and choosing to follow God's way. That's what repentance looks like. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you seen the air ball of your supposed righteousness? And just how pitiful that air ball was. And how far it missed the hoop of God's standard. Have you seen how crooked you are? Have you laid down your pride? And expose the crookedness of your inward nature in front of both God and man. That's what baptism is all about. When somebody gets in this tank right here, what they're saying is, I'm a crooked person who needs a great Savior. That's what a profession of faith is all about. The problem is people are too prideful to do it. Somebody needs to get saved this morning. Somebody needs to say in their seat, I am tired of being a prideful, stubborn man or woman. I'm going to bow my knee to Jesus, and we need to have a baptism in a couple of weeks. What, what is that? What's the delay? Do you really think that you can stand in front of God? If you're not a Christian. Do you, if you're, do you really feel that? Then lower your raised fist to God. You're trying to fight God. You're rebellious in your heart. Lower your clenched fist away from God and realize that the BB gun of your rebellion and your self-made authority looks stupid in front of God's tank. You got a little BB gun in front of God's tank of righteousness and it looks stupid. Realize that. God is big. He is a consuming fire. Don't try to fight God or resist him. Do what David did. Acknowledge your failure. Stop hiding your sin and confess that God's way is right. You see that little word, Selah, the end of verse 5 in the margin? You know what that means? That word means pause and take notice. I think this would be a good time to pause and for all of us to repent. Whether you're a Christian and you're running from God, or whether you're seeking God, you still have moments of sin and rebellion in your heart, or whether you're just lost. This would be a good time for us to pause and repent. Let's pray for a minute. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we are great sinners. Every one of us in this room, 
whether we have whether we have chosen to rebel against your name in a very blatant way or whether we just do it all the time and not realizing it. God, we are we have raised our fists in your face. We want to confess that's wrong. And we want to ask you for mercy, God, to come and please forgive us for our our rebellion and our sin and our inward crookedness and our guilt and our transgression, our air balls of righteousness that have never made it to your hoop. And we just go to Jesus. Would you help us to do that and to live there underneath the cross in Jesus' name? See, it's great to pray and just immediately appropriate the word of God. The, the psalm continues. The gospel's coming. We are sinners, but the gospel's coming. I'm going to throw, by God's grace and through his spirit, hope on you. The gospel's coming. And, and what happens when we acknowledge our sin and stop trying to hide? What do you think happens? Does, does God laugh at us and say, yeah. Does God look incredulous and say, hey, sorry, man, you're just too late? Nope. Does he chide us and rebuke us for being so presumptuous to even ask? No. No. God does exactly what we ask him for. He forgives us. He forgives us, and he does not do it begrudgingly. He immediately and decisively forgives us. God stands ready to forgive that's what happens when we repent. He actually forgives us, and he does it in three ways. Listen, we sin in three ways, and God forgives in three ways. Look at verse 1 again. Blessed is the, is the one whose transgression is, here it is, forgiven, whose sin, here it is, number two, covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There it is. He forgives transgressions, he covers sins, and he does not count our iniquity against us. Praise God. We sin three ways, God forgives us three ways. So when the burden of sin was pressing down on David, what did he do? He acknowledged his sin, and Jesus lifted his burden. Jesus lifted his burden on the cross. He placed it on his own shoulders. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Christian, when your sin was nailed to the cross, it was dealt with once and for all. It was finished. The payment was made. And God does not count your iniquity against you. Micah seven nineteen. He has cast our sin into the depth of the sea. The burden is lifted. The sin gone. Bunyan has a beautiful description of this in Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what he says. The, his burden loosed, fell from his shoulders, fell from his back, and began to tumble. And so it continued to do so until it came to the mouth of a burial pit where it fell in and was seen no more. And that's what happens to your sin when you repent. Now, this, this becomes clear. Now you know why Psalm 32 starts with blessed. See, now you know why he says happy is the man. I mean, is anyone happy today? 
Anyone happy? Are you a happy Christian in the pew? Anyone happy today? This is not a sad psalm. This is a happy psalm. This is a gospel psalm. It starts on a jubilant note, and guess what? It finishes with celebration. And think about this. The word happy or blessed in verse 1, I love this thought. It's reserved for sinners. That word happy is not for righteous people. It's reserved for sinners. Sinners who have repented and found forgiveness in a gracious God. You want to be happy? Declare yourself to be a sinner and go go to Go to God for grace. That's where happiness comes from. The guy who thinks he's happy, the guy who thinks he's got it together, the guy who's got a nice appearance and he's all together, that guy's not happy. The guy who's happy or most happy in this world is the person who knows he's been forgiven of much. I mean, the classic example of this is the prostitute who begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her, with her hair and her tears. And Jesus says... The one who loves much is the one who's been forgiven much. So if you know yourself to be forgiven much, you will love God much. Happiness will flow. It will come from that. So we've seen then that if we are forgiven, if we're covered, if we're clean, and that all those things are true, then what does that mean for us? Verses 7 and 8, it means that we have a new and restored relationship with God. It means that God relates to us in new ways. And look here at the text. This is great. The text mentions three ways. Again, verses 7 and 8. Three things that describe what God has become for us now. You're a Christian. If you're forgiven, if you're clean, if you're covered, God is for you right now. Three things. A hiding place, a protector, and a counselor. Just 7 and 8. A hiding place, a protector, and a counselor. First, David says, you are a hiding place for me. What does he mean by hiding place? What do you think, what do you think that means? What's that imagery? We sing that song, you know, you are my hiding place. Do we even know what we're singing when we sing that? Maybe you have a guess. What is it? Hiding place from what? Well, I think verse 6 gives us a clue. Verse 6, David speaks about a rush of great water. Do you see that? Rush of great water. Now, you know, you have to know this. Water in the Bible is a metaphor. It's an image that's used all the time. And it means several things. But one of the things that it's constantly used for is to talk about chaos or judgment that comes from God. It's God's judgment. And all you have to do is think about Noah. What was the, what was the judgment in Noah's day? Was it fire from heaven? No. It was water. It was the flood. God is sending his judgment. And why is he doing it? For sin. He's sending his judgment of water because of sin. So, so the judgment is coming, and David says in verse 6, Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found, and surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. What does he mean? He means the waters of God's wrath will not reach us if we are in Christ. We have a hiding place from God's wrath, and that hiding place in verse 7 is Christ. Christ is your hiding place. He is saving us from the wrath of God. You want to see Jesus in this text? It's right there. Jesus is your hiding place. That's who Jesus is. When you live, every day you're in the hiding place. You live in the hiding place. You can't do anything but live in the hiding place because once you put your trust in Jesus, you're locked in that hiding place. And no matter what comes against you, 
especially the wrath of God, when it comes on the last day, it will not harm you. It will not touch you. You are in the hiding place. Is the eye of the hurricane. The hurricane of God's wrath is going to pour. It is going to be absolutely poured out. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But when the wrath of God comes, if you are in that hiding place, you will be secure. Jesus is your hiding place. So you see what David's teaching here? It's really quite counterintuitive. Think about this with me. David is teaching us that confessing our sin, listen, confessing our sin and getting it out into the open is actually the only way to really cover it. That's what he's teaching. He's teaching that coming out of our own hiding is actually the only way we can really hide from God's wrath. Stop covering your sin and get covered. Stop hiding and find real, a real hiding place. That's what David's saying. So Christ is our hiding place. But notice, secondly, he preserves us from trouble, verse 7. That, that, that just means he protects us. He stands in the way of all that threatens us. You know the psalm, again, another psalm, we are hidden under the shadow of his wings. Isn't that a great analogy? We, Jesus talks about little chicks, you know, and he's covering them. We are hiding under the shadow of his wings. And he preserves us spiritually. Not just physically, but spiritually. He preserves our faith. What did Jesus say in John 10? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What God has begun, he will finish. And he will preserve you. He's the author and he's the perfecter of your faith. So he's our hiding place, number one. He preserves us, number two. And number three, what is he? He's a counselor. Verse eight, I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. All right, this is weird from the standpoint of this doesn't happen in the Psalms very often. You know what, I'm, what I mean here is this, is that there's no introduction or transition the speaker changes identity. This is not David talking anymore. All of God's word is breathed from God. I realize that, but... David is speaking in Psalm 32, but in verses, in verse 8 and 9, he changes identity. Is God speaking. It's God's intimate, personal voice, and God says, God says this. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. No introduction, no, no transition. Until now, David has been speaking about God, but now listen to what God is saying. He's our counselor. And is this not, this isn't surprising, is it? Because what did Jesus teach in the New Testament? What did Jesus teach his disciples? He said, I will send a counselor to you. Who's the counselor? The counselor is the Holy Spirit. And, I would, and Jesus says, I will send a counselor, the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us. He counsels us with his word. He uses it to open our minds and to expand our understanding. But how humble and majestic is our God that he personally speaks to us. That he personally teaches us. God does not say, I'll send an angel to you and have him teach you. God does not say, I'll just merely send you a pastor or a preacher who will open God's word. Listen, there is a load of difference between the most gifted teacher in the world explaining the Bible to you and the Holy Spirit opening it to your heart. That It really is the difference between life and death. Because unless the Spirit opens your heart to see what's in his word... No power will come. You can take the most gifted teacher in the world. No persuasion. 
No amount of exegetical skill or preaching ability will do it. But the Holy Spirit, when he speaks to you in that quiet time, when you're sitting there in the morning and you're trying to seek God, or maybe you're broken down in life, and you're just asking God to speak to you, and you don't hear his voice, you don't feel him, and you're like Paul Washer, who at one point of his life got to a point where he was so upset because he did not feel or sense the presence of God that he actually picked up a rock and he threw it up at heaven, and he said, God, where are you? And at that moment, God came and spoke to Paul, and you know how he spoke to him this way? What a wicked thing for you to do to throw a rock at me. How could you throw a rock at me? I have, I have done nothing but bless you your whole life. And all of a sudden, Paul's like, there's the voice of God. I hear it. And God used that to comfort him. So when you're standing there and you're like, God, speak to me. That preacher may not be able to do it. Your husband or wife may not be able to do it. But listen, the Spirit of God can. And this is what the Word says. I will counsel you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will guide you in the way you will go. So, friend, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Let the Spirit direct you. Have the Spirit direct you. You know what? You know what people, let just say this. People say, you know, you shouldn't use the language, let the Spirit, because the Spirit will do what he wants. But you understand what that means. That means open your heart. It means be receptive. It means don't be hardened. Be receptive to God's Spirit. Well, what a psalm. Three things. There it is. Three things that God becomes for us. A hiding place, a protector, and a counselor. What a psalm. David and Bathsheba, one of the great cover-ups of human history. Failed. Failed. Miserably failed. It failed because it was conquered by a much bigger cover-up. The covering of over of our sin by God. That's the great cover-up. It's God's great cover-up. And here's how it happens. We're guilty of transgression, sin, and iniquity. Three things. What does God do? He intervenes on our behalf. He drives us to repentance by making us miserable. So we acknowledge our sin, we stop covering it up, and we confess it to the Lord. And when we do that, what does God do? He responds in three ways. He He responds that he forgives us, he gives us a real covering, and he does not count our sin against us. And as a result of that, God has become for us three things, a hiding place, a protector, and a counselor. And if all that is true, and it is, then how should we respond to God? Three ways. Verse 11, be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. Do you sense the love of God? morning or does anyone still need some incentive to rejoice listen we have experienced deliverance from the flood of god's wrath christ has taken it for us we get to be joyful because for the joy set before him jesus endured the cross and in the shadow of that cross jesus exhorts his people to be glad and rejoice the day of deliverance has come It has come. People of God, the day of deliverance is here. We're on the other side of Calvary. Forgiveness is real. The Savior has risen. Sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated. And now the shepherd rejoices with his sheep. Friends, Jesus is not only our hiding place from the rest of God's wrath, as precious as that is. 
He does not merely preserve us from trouble and counsel us with his eye upon us. But verse 7, what does it say at the end? He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. Do you feel the love of God? Oh, friends, listen, please understand what I'm saying. That God does not want to correct you with bit and bridle like verse 9. That's not God's attitude to you. God does not want to discipline you in order to keep you near him. He will do that if necessary. But that's not what he wants to do. That's not God's heart. Let me tell you the means that God has designed to keep you near him. It is this, the kindness, love, and grace of God. That's our motivation for obedience. The only motive strong enough to keep you near the Savior is his love for you. The power is in the gospel. It's only when you understand what Jesus has done for you and what he is doing for you right now that you'll keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. And what is Jesus doing right now? Well, it's right there in verse 7. There he is. Here's a sighting of Jesus. He's standing over you with shouts of deliverance. He has saved you from the wrath of God, and he is shouting words of freedom and deliverance over you. Look with the eyes of faith, and there you'll see Jesus singing Psalm 32 over you. (laughs) Jesus is singing the psalm. Do you know the words of Zephaniah? Just think about this. the, The words of Zephaniah 317. These words are just ringing through my ears. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you by his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. People of God, that's exactly what's happening right now. And guess what? That party is just getting started. And you know what? You know what else? That party will never end. Ever. I think that's all the motivation we need. Father, we give you praise. Thank you, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, for giving us your precious spirit, for convicting us of sin, for driving us to repentance, for leading us into your presence. God, I pray, we pray together as a family that you would just move now. Your spirit would be moving, that nobody would leave here unless they have reconciled with God. If somebody's running, God, that they would stop right now in their tracks and lay down and repent. And, Lord, if somebody else, Lord, is is just lost and they feel their undoneness before God, that they will come. There's mercy. Your arms are open. So, God, come. Do your work. In Jesus' name.